Welcome to VBAC Birth Stories. Join us as we speak to Australian women about their journey towards a vaginal birth after cesarean. In Australia, the cesarean rate has risen to 36%. That's one of the highest rates in the developed world. We hope that by sharing these stories, women and their care providers are able to gain insight into why these rates are on the increase. We also get to meet and understand the women behind these numbers. We are your hosts, Mel and Steph, and we hope you enjoy Season 3 of Feedback Birth Stories. VBAC Birth Stories acknowledge the ongoing connection that Aboriginal people have to this land and recognise Aboriginal people as the original custodians of the land on which we stand. This podcast is produced on Darugan Gandagara and Gadiga land and we would like to pay respect to its elders, past and present. Hi everyone, Mel and I hope that wherever you're listening from, you're doing well. Um, This week we're bringing you an episode from Rosalie, who is an Adelaide mother of two, and her path to pregnancy was anything but straightforward. For women in same-sex relationships, accessing IVF proves difficult, to say the least, and she encountered quite a few obstacles around this and some low-level stigma from service providers. Despite that, and suffering one ectopic, pregnancy and a miscarriage, she was finally able to fall pregnant after a gruelling seven rounds of IVF. You'll hear her story of a first birth that ended in a coercive series of interventions and an emergency caesarean. That's a story which is sadly becoming all too common for Australian women. After experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, Rosalie placed a formal complaint with APRA And we spoke about the importance of women speaking out so that the maternity system can do better. Rosalie's second pregnancy was using her egg and not her partner's, and she planned a home birth VBAC. But amazingly, her baby was descending in face presentation, which is quite rare, and so the decision was made to transfer to hospital. I won't spoil her VBAC outcome, you can listen for yourself, uh, but we hope you enjoy the uniqueness of her story. It's very timely as it's Home Birth Awareness Week this week, so we hope you can gain some knowledge about how different all planned home births can unfold and that babies can offer us some curveballs despite all of our best intentions. So thank you to Rosalie for sharing your very personal story with us and your valuable knowledge and also your passion in birth. Rosalie is actually one of our patrons and we're very grateful to her and our other supporters who help keep the pod going. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you to this episode's sponsor, Mim Kids a sleep aid and feeding light. White noise has long been known to help babies relax and link their sleep cycles. Mim Kids is more than just a white noise machine though. It's a portable, small and lightweight device designed to gently transition baby from the womb into the big world for use throughout childhood and beyond. 
MimKids plays a white noise frequency that's gentle on the ears, as well as pink noise, which can encourage deeper sleep. Portable for more than 12 hours, you can use this feature to help Bub fall asleep gently while on the go, freeing up some of that precious mobile phone battery life. Not to mention you can use it to help block out the busy voice of your toddler during nap times. You can also stream the sounds you love during labour with Mim's handy Bluetooth connectivity, whilst creating a calm burnt space with its soft lighting. It features red light therapy for nighttime feeds and nappy changes, and as your child grows, this can double up as a nightlight. To learn more about MimKids' multi-purpose features and benefits, head over to their Instagram page or their website. And while you're there, you can enjoy a 15% discount on the product by using the code VBAC15 upon checkout. Please head to this episode's show notes for all the details and link to MimKids.com. Please now enjoy this episode of VBAC Burt Stories. Well, today we have got Rosalie with us from Adelaide. Would you like to maybe start by sharing a little bit about yourself? Yep. So um, my name is Rosalie. I live on Ghana country, so Adelaide. I have two kids. So I've got Bertie, who is three, and I've got Mabel, who is almost six months. And we're really lucky to be a rainbow family. So Bertie and Mabel have two mums. And so that's Kylie, their other mum. And yeah, I'm just still sort of on mat leave at the moment but just gradually slipping back into work and um, my job is as a community pastor at our little church that we go to which is a uh, we kind of describe ourselves as a community of activists so we're involved in lots of advocacy work and particularly LGBT rights but kind of all advocacy all working for people who might be uh, less privileged I suppose which is probably part of why I'm pretty into birth and pretty into birth activism as well. Oh, just for those of us that don't don't know, can you explain to us how you described it as a rainbow family? How, how does that work and how did that come about? Yeah, so it's me and Kylie. We met in 2013, got married in 2015 and then started trying for kids. And we obviously need a little bit of help. So um, one of our beautiful friends agreed to be our sperm donor. Uh, we went down the IVF route because well, basically I was, I really have always wanted to have a baby and carry a baby and breastfeed. And Kylie was more interested in the idea of like a genetic connection and seeing like what happens when you have a baby that's your genes. And so um, for our first child, we used her eggs and I carried um, him. Would you say um, the whole experience of accessing IVF for same-sex couples, was that challenging or was it fairly accessible for you? No, so it was really challenging because when we started the process, it wasn't legal in South Australia for same-sex couples or for single women to access any kind of reproductive technology. Um, And that has since changed. It's still hard because it's not necessarily covered by Medicare like it is for straight couples. But yeah, so back when we did it, the kind of loophole was that the way they'd written the law was that you had to be medically infertile. So if you couldn't just say, I'm a same-sex couple, I want IVF, but if you could somehow find a doctor who would diagnose you as being infertile. So that's what we did. We went and got a whole lot of tests and had this weird thing where we were like, oh, fingers crossed. 
we're infertile, I suppose. Wow. So that was the only the only legal loophole, I guess? Or Yeah, yeah. So if we hadn't have qualified through that, we would have had to have gone to Melbourne to do IVF. So before uh, you and Kylie fell pregnant um, with Bertie, what was your preconceived notions about birth? Mm, I love that you guys ask this question. It's always so fascinating to me and it's made me think myself about that stuff. So I'm the oldest of eight children. So I've always been around babies and I've always listened to birth stories of, you know, my mom and my mum's friends. And I was so interested in that as a kid and growing up. And I really considered being a midwife pretty strongly for a while. I think overall I had like a really positive view of, of birth, but you know, when you're younger, you you get a little bit kind of, I don't know, it was a little bit like, you know, the more dramatic the story, the uh, more interesting I found it. Um, but then when I was in my early 20s, there was some really unfortunate stuff that happened in the home birth community in Adelaide and it was in the news a lot. At first, my initial reaction was kind of like, oh, you know, that's so like dangerous why would anyone home birth like that's that's awful and then because I guess I've always been raised to sort of question like beliefs like that judgmental beliefs and so when I found myself thinking that I was like no like you know you don't know anything about this and so I investigated it and I started watch back then everything was on YouTube and I watched these home births on YouTube and I was just blown away and I was like this is amazing um so yeah from my early 20s I had this real interest in like physiological birth and particularly home birth and so on that aspect I think I had this really positive view of pregnancy and birth and breastfeeding as well my mum was a Australian breastfeeding association counsellor so there was just always people in my house breastfeeding growing up but then because of the IVF journey that we went on and I was saying before like we kind of needed to be diagnosed as infertile but I didn't really think I was and then we had a really challenging journey to conceiving Bertie and and he ended up being our seventh transfer and we had a ectopic pregnancy and a miscarriage in that time and the miscarriage in particular was quite traumatic for me and so I kind of I had this really strong belief in birth but also I think a bit of like uncertainty thinking that like maybe there was something wrong with my body like that maybe I always had this worry at the back of my mind that you know maybe it wasn't going to be my story but I really really wanted it to be I don't know if that makes sense yeah how does it feel when you're going through that IVF process to have those you know that that roller coaster of you know the implantation and falling pregnant and then to have the pregnancy not carry through to term it's just really hard and you really like one of the most affirming things I heard was the first time I heard someone talk about it as trauma and I was I went oh yeah this is traumatic like this isn't just like a series of sad events this is actually quite traumatic it's a really hard journey and I have so much love in my heart for everyone who goes through infertility and baby loss did you ever through the IVF process and and in dealing with the hospital and and that entire process did you face any sort of stigma for being a same-sex couple in that process or did you was everyone quite accepting how did that play out yeah no we did actually have a bit of uh, have a few issues and had to actually put through a complaint about someone um, on one occasion um, that was probably the worst one was it was actually when we had had got pregnant with Bertie and we were having like our first appointment with the hospital and the the midwife just didn't get it. She just didn't understand 
that we used Kylie's egg, but I was carrying it and she didn't know what that meant. So there was a whole lot of medical stuff. Like she was saying, oh, well, you don't need to worry about your your blood type for anti-D. And I was like, yes, I do. Like, I know that I do. Um, some of the stuff she said was um, when I said, oh, you know, I've had an ectopic and I've had a miscarriage before. And she said, oh, yes, but they don't count as your pregnancies because it was Kylie's egg. So they count as Kylie's pregnancies, not as yours. And it was a just A little like, bit insensitive. Yeah, it was super oh my insensitive. Gosh. And also just like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. it was my body. Like, <laughs> I was the one who went through this. Kylie did as well, but, and they were her children, but it wasn't her body. And a lot of, you know, every time we would go in, we learned pretty quickly, but you'd go in for an ultrasound and people would say, oh, who's this? Is this your sister or your friend? And it, it was just like, well, no, she's my wife. <laughs> um, and just, we, we learned really quickly to get in first and, and say, oh, hi, I'm Rosalie and this is my wife, um, because it just, it would be embarrassing. Do you feel as though things have changed even now since that time where you where you first fell pregnant or unfortunately not really it's a really mixed bag lots of people are amazing and really really great and you know sometimes you'll go to an appointment and people will say oh and, and what are your pronouns and you know people can be really really inclusive of LGBT people and then other times yeah there's just a real lack of kind of forethought and understanding and people will say oh so where's your husband today and um, so you um went with a hospital birth do you want to take us back to that sort of decision making yeah so we actually planned a home birth through the mgp um so i listened like you know i was really into birth and i had listened to lots of the australian birth stories podcast when i was from the first time i was pregnant even when i um lost that baby um and so i'd had Sometimes I felt like I was pregnant for like a year and a half because I felt like I was planning for Birdie's birth for so long. And I just listened to these stories and just the home birth was just so appealing to me. But a couple of different things made us not choose to go privately for the home birth the first time. And one was that there was a real lack of home birth midwives in Adelaide at that time. Um, and it's also expensive. And we had just spent a lot, a lot of money on IVF. And, you know, finances has to come into it at some point. And so then I found out that, you know, you can do home birth, a publicly funded home birth through MGP. And it just sounded like the answer to all of our dreams at the first booking on appointment said, I really want a home birth. I really want to be an MGP. Um, and then we found out when I was 22 weeks or something like that, we found out that we'd got into MGP, which was really exciting. We had already had a bit of a tricky pregnancy with Birdie right from the start it had been the HCG like levels hadn't been doubling and stuff when I first got pregnant so it had taken ages for us to actually confirm the pregnancy and then I'd had a bleed and then when we had our like morphology scan we had it like a couple of weeks early because we were going away on holidays and they thought they found something wrong with him so we had to go back like two weeks later and then they thought something different was wrong with him with his brain so we ended up having like three morphology scans to kind of before we confirmed that everything was okay. So I'd already had this like big roller coaster of a pregnancy, but with no appointments or no kind of support um, because you don't, um, like most MG programs, you don't start that until you're, yeah, 20 something weeks. Um, well, I really wanted a, the most kind of intervention free physiological birth. Um, and I knew from my research and from listening to stories that the best place to do that would be at home 
but yeah we did feel like I guess we're first-time parents we felt a little bit nervous about it and that's part of why as well we thought that the publicly funded home birth model would be a good system because we're like oh well they're so so um adverse to risk so you know we'll be sure that if anything you know is going wrong you know we'd be risked out and at the start of the pregnancy that seems like a good idea um but then it turned out to be a bad thing (laughs) at the end of the um at the end of the pregnancy what sort of happened towards the end um, of the pregnancy you were feeling after this I guess this little scares that you sort of had there at the morphology scan after that was it pretty smooth sailing until the end would you say it was but um, one of the things that they picked up on because I'd had those three morph scans and at each one of them um, they had noted that the baby was measuring in the 99th percentile I was really naive, I guess, and I saw that and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like my body is so incredible. I was so proud of it. I was like, I've grown this like big, strong baby. Like, you know, I'm so happy about this Um, and didn't like an honestly a negative thought didn't cross my mind until I had my first midwifery appointment at 23 weeks. And that was the first time that they said that they were going to recommend an induction they're like, well, your baby measured big on their morphology scan, so we're probably going to want you to be induced at 38 weeks. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm having a home birth, remember? <laughs> and, yeah, my midwife, I don't know if it was at that appointment or at another one, she explained to me, because then I, I'd read all the things and I was like, nothing rules me out of a home birth. And she's like, oh, no, like, that's what macrosomia is. You know, one of the bullet points says macrosomia. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, if your baby is measuring above the 85th percentile you're risked out of home birth Um, and so I then I guess spent the rest of the pregnancy just being really upset and worried about it and they basically they wanted to risk me out then and there and I said no that's not fair like I want to have a growth scan at 36 weeks Um, and so that's when I had a growth scan and he was still measuring big and that's when they formally risked me out I fought really hard. I went and saw an OB to kind of try and argue my case and say, you know, just because my baby's measuring big, what if I go into labor at 38 weeks? Then, you know, they'll probably, you know, they will be big for 38 weeks, but not big for 41 weeks. You know, can't I, can't we at least have an agreement that if I go into labor before my due date that, and he was really interesting. He agreed with me. He said, it's a, it's a dumb policy. It shouldn't be there. He was negative, but he was like, oh, I don't think you have a home birth as a first time mom. I think you transfer to hospital, but it would be perfectly safe, but I still can't let you do it. So that was really upsetting. The thing I didn't know is that when I would, was formally rejected for having a home birth, that also meant that I couldn't have a water birth. That just really guided me and it felt that was when it really started to feel like my choices were being taken away from me because, you know, my plan was to use water as my main pain relief. and so. Essentially, I was being told, actually, no, you're not allowed to have access to the pain relief that you want. It was really, really hard and I cried a lot. Did you agree to an induction at this point or did you have in your mind, no, I'm not getting my home birth, but I want to go into labour spontaneously? Yeah, so no, I was still really set on having a intervention-free birth. I knew all about the cascade of interventions. I was really, really well educated, like so I'd done a calm birth course, I'd listened to heaps of stuff, I'd um, read everything on the evidence-based birth website and I knew that the biggest risk for when you have a big baby, the biggest risk is care provider fear. It's not actually having 
the big baby themselves. Um, so they offered me, they're like, do you want induction at 38 weeks or 39 weeks? And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> I'm not having either of those. I'm not getting induced until, you know, as late as possible. And I finally, um, my midwife rang me one day and she said, can we book in a date? And I wanted to make things easier for her. I didn't want her. I know I knew enough about how the system worked that I knew that she would be getting pressure. Um, and so I said, yeah, that's fine. Let's book it in for 40 plus 10. Um, and if I get to that point, I can always say no, right? I can always decline then. And she said, yes, 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 of course. You can always, you know, no one's ever going to make you do something that you don't want to do. So you can absolutely decline it. Let's just book it in. She said, oh, actually, we've got to book it in for 40 plus nine. I said, all right. Um, let's book it in and just thought I'm going to go into labor before then <laughs> so 40 plus eight I had an appointment with my midwife and Kylie and I had had a big chat about it and I just said you know my gut is telling me that it's not right to have this induction like I'm not ready we've been having monitoring every two days um, since I hit 40 weeks I was like the baby's been fine on all this monitoring I feel really good um, I feel really comfortable with this baby being in there. Like, let's let's just keep going. And I said, I'll book it in for, I still didn't even really want to book it for 42 weeks, but in this MGP, if you went over 42 weeks, you got kicked out of MGP. So 41 plus six so that I can be in labour by the time I'm 42 weeks. And if you're in labour, they normally will let your midwife stay with you. My midwife said, yep, that's fine. We did. We tried a stretch and sweep that day and um, I was basically still so close that she couldn't kind of get in to do a proper stretch and sweep and we talked her through and she's like yep like it's you've done all the research you know the risks that's all fine she said can you come to the hospital though tomorrow for some monitoring I was like yep no worries that's fine so I went to the hospital the next day so the day that I was supposed to have the induction um, I rocked up in the morning to have some monitoring and she said, we'll rebook your induction then. And so I was sitting there on the monitor and my midwife came in and said, oh, look, we're having a bit of trouble finding a date for you. She was like, I'm assuming you don't, you're not going to be happy to get induced tomorrow. That's the only appointment I can find. And I was like, no, I really want to go until the Wednesday, which was yeah the day before 42 weeks. And so she went off and I was there for hours. I was just there for hours and hours and hours. Meanwhile, Kylie and I had had a discussion and we really were feeling the pressure. And so we were like, let's do the castor oil thing so she was driving around going to all different chemists trying to find castor oil because everyone was sold out of it um i guess everyone was trying to induce themselves at home that day i don't know um <laughs> so she's driving around trying to do that and keeps texting us like are you finished yet? i know like i'm still here i'm still waiting i'm still just in this room my midwife came back and she said rosalie i'm really sorry a doctor is about to come in and have a conversation with you and it's not going to be very pleasant. I'm really sorry. And so that was, I guess, my first inkling that I wasn't going to be supported in what I wanted. And this doctor just came in and she was just so awful. She just was, oh, just some of the things that she said, she was kind of combative right from the start. And right from the start, I was in this position where I was, you know, on the kind of bed chair thing that you're like lying back because you've had monitoring on and she was standing up over me it was like she'd read my file and seen you know okay she's said no to the gbs swab she's wanting a home birth she's you know said no to the induction um she's like she'd read all of that stuff and came in 
basically ready to fight and was like, you know, you need to have this baby today. This baby is huge. This is so dangerous. You know, your placenta is about to fail. And, you know, like looking back, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. How is my baby at the same time getting exponentially larger every single day, but also my placenta is failing? My placenta is failing. My baby's not getting bigger. Is it? Like, you know, it didn't make sense. But at the time, it was just so confronting. And she's saying to me and kind of looking over at Kylie and saying, your baby could die. There'll be nothing we can do. At one point, she said something like, if I can't get you to care about your baby, could I at least get you to care about your pelvic floor? Um, you could be incontinent after this. Um, oh, it was really awful. I Towards the end, and, and I was also like visibly really upset, like, and this is what I don't, I, yeah, I find so troubling about the whole situation is that I was sitting there crying and she wasn't even kind of toning it down for that. And I was trying to advocate for myself. And I said, I was saying things like, you know, well, but what about the risks of induction? And she was just so rude and wouldn't even kind of go through the risks of induction um, with me. And I said, look, I know inductions lead to a, a high rate of C-sections you know, can we talk about like, is there anything that we can do if I do agree to be induced? Is there anything we can do to, you know, I suppose make the chance of a cesarean less likely, you know, I really want a a vaginal birth, even if I have to be induced. And she said, Rosalie, the time to talk about um, you having a vaginal delivery was at 38 weeks when we first offered you an induction. I don't give you any chance of being able to get that baby out of your vagina. Um, Like she, it was just really horrible. Um, she went out in the corridor and I could hear her fighting with my midwife saying, basically saying to my midwife, you need to convince her to have a cesarean this afternoon, um, like a cold cesarean. And my midwife saying she's not going to agree to that, like listen to what she's saying. Yeah. Did you feel um, at any point that the midwives were sort of advocating on your behalf or did you feel that they were supporting that view of the doctor? Look, it's really hard. Like on the one hand, like my midwife was a really beautiful person and I really enjoyed getting to know her over that pregnancy. But I did feel a bit let down by her at the end. So on the one hand, she was saying that and was advocating for me to not have just a cesarean off the bat. Um, But then the doctor left and we were talking to her and she said something which was really like we were like well I don't know what to do I was like I just like I said I'm so upset and I said you know I feel like everything's okay I feel like I've just had this monitoring and I really feel okay and she said oh you know the monitoring doesn't really tell us anything I've seen a baby completely fine on CTG monitoring and four hours later they were dead and she's like I really think it's time to get this baby out Um, and I guess that felt a bit coercive as well like, and I'm really disappointing coming from my midwife who I thought you know she'd said to me the whole pregnancy you don't have to say yes to anything you know it's always your right to say no mm. and I really see where she was coming from as well like I, midwives have really high rates of trauma and they're treated really horribly in the system and so she's really in that system and so in some ways she has to abide by <clears throat> Yeah, I've gone through periods of time where I was really angry at my midwife, but now I think I've come to a place that's a bit more compassionate. It would be really exhausting for midwives to be in a position of trying to protect people kind of every day um, from this system, which is really broken. 
but yeah and so and then I was just I was so upset and I said well can I at least have until tomorrow you know because you, you told me there was that appointment available tomorrow and I'm so upset the one thing I know is that like birth doesn't progress when your adrenaline is high and I don't think my adrenaline's ever been high I'm so upset right now and the doctor was back at that point and she said she said no you can't have that you need to get induced tonight if you don't then we need you to sign a waiver saying that if your baby dies it's your fault and I didn't I didn't know enough about what that meant like I know now what signing that waiver would have meant but she made it sound like I was basically saying you know I'm refusing all medical care kind of thing yeah and so um, we we went home and like got our bags and packed up all the stuff that we'd been planning to use to labor at home the you know diffuser and speaker and all that kind of stuff we packed it all up and um, came back to the hospital so yeah probably the worst kind of start to labor that (laughs) there could have been how many weeks were you again at this point so I was 41 plus two looking back now what do you think they could have offered you as an alternative well I think that they should have not coerced me into an induction that day I think that I should have been able to be induced, you know, at 42 weeks like I wanted to. I actually think I would have gone, based on how my labour went, I think I actually would have gone into labour anyway. I mean, everyone goes into labour at some point. No one stays pregnant forever, right? I think as well you can explain the risks to someone in a way that's not abusive and that's not threatening. Care practitioners should be responsive to how a person is acting and if the person is, like, openly weeping in front of you, you should think about, you know, is this person able to make a, a rational um, decision if they're crying and shaking and, you know, their breathing is, like, shallow? Like, that's not, yeah. um, that's not how you should be making an important decision about your healthcare. And what kind of effect do you think being in that mindset had for you as you came back to the hospital and started the labour process? It was just awful. Like I literally cried the whole time while we were packing and getting ready. ready. I was just crying because I'd done so much research and I knew that inductions had risks and they were kind of saying, kind of denying that. And so I felt like it was really unsafe and I felt like I was going to the situation where people were denying that there was any risk. I could see that they didn't care about my emotional well-being and I was basically felt like I was the only person kind of looking out for me and my baby and that it was all on my shoulders and I had to keep us safe Um, and so I had at that point really I had no trust in anyone at the hospital and I was like I just have to survive this process which is the opposite of how anyone should feel in birth you should feel safe and loved and supported. Mm Rosalie, I'm curious, because Bertie was conceived by IVF and you did have a history, you had a miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, did they use that as well as a reason to induce you or did that not get brought up at all? Yeah, they did. So that was really interesting that because I'd seen a couple of OBs over the time, you know, over the pregnancy and the OBs I'd seen had said, oh, no, that the evidence about IVF and pregnancy, that's outdated. That doesn't apply to you. You didn't have IVF you know, because you're older or um, because you had, you know, significant fertility problems. Yeah, they were just like, no, 
that's fine. We don't need to induce you for IVF reasons. And then at this appointment, um, when this lady was coercing me um, into um, having the procedure, she she brought it up then and she wrote it in my notes that it was an induction for IVF reasons um, and for large baby and for post-AIDS. So, yeah, they did bring it up, um, but only then. So that was a bit confusing that different doctors had these different like kind of opposite views. Do you want to tell us how the birth went when you went in for your induction? Yeah, yeah. So, again, it was hard. So I talked to my midwife about the induction and said that, you know, I would prefer to have the Foley bulb induct because I thought, well, at least that's not um, drugs, at least that's a mechanical induction. Um, and so that was the plan. And then when I got in, um, she said, oh, the doctor, because um, Bertie's head wasn't engaged, and she said, you know, if we do that, there's a risk of cord prolapse. Um, so we're going to do the gel instead. And so I'm really, really upset about that because um, it felt like already things were like changing and not going with the, you know, kind of the new birth plan, like the induction birth plan. I was really upset and I went off to the bathroom and just sat in there and like cried for probably 20 minutes or something while um, she and Kylie were waiting in the room. Um, thing about how my midwife, her job was like, what do they call it? Like a job share. So she job shared with another midwife and it was week on week off. And this was basically like the last thing she was doing before going off on her week off. It was just a really emotionally charged time for me because I kind of felt like she was really abandoning me, even though of course she doesn't control when her roster is and stuff like that. But it just felt really kind of symbolic of that. And if, you know, it's like, it's hard because I had this relationship with her and I'd said no so many times to being induced with her it was then really hard that it felt like she was kind of part of the coercion at the end. And you felt like she didn't really go into that for you there. Yeah. And, well, and you know, we like, we were like the Me Too generation, right? And we know now that like, if it was sex and if you said no over and over and over and over and over to someone about um, sex, and then they said, well, someone you love is going to die. And so you said, yes, like we know that that would be assault. And so it felt a little bit like that for me. And I don't want, I, I don't want to. Coercion. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like I'd said no so many times. And then I said yes once and it wasn't a real. It was yeah. sort of after you were backed into a corner. Yeah. Yeah. Not given a lot of other options. Um, yeah. So what happened then? How did they, did they induce you with? With the gel. So they put the gel on um, and then left me overnight. And it, I couldn't really feel the contractions, but they said they were coming so fast and strong that they couldn't give me the second dose of the gel. Um, Kylie had to go home overnight. She wasn't allowed to stay. Um, so she went home to sleep. And then I had this midwife looking after me. She was pretty nice. I'd got a little bit of sleep, but she came in at three o'clock to do some obs. And she said really casually, she was like, oh, okay. So at about six o'clock in the morning, you know, they'll come in and break your waters. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, oh, well, you know, everyone on the ward who's getting induced, they all get their waters broken. And I was like, what? Like, I'm not on a conveyor belt. <laughs> like, what, what are <laughs> you talking about? This wasn't exciting to me. <laughs> um, and that sent me into a real frenzy. And so I didn't go to sleep after that, which was unfortunate. And I was Googling and trying to find out what my rights were and there's this Facebook group called Induction of Labour and I was like writing and there I was like I looked at my post recently and 
I was like, I've been coerced into being here. What can I do? Like at one point I packed all my stuff up. I'm like, I'm just going to leave the hospital. I'm just going to get a taxi home. I'm just going to leave the hospital. Um, so I was feeling like just really frantic. And I didn't because then I was like, oh, what if I get in trouble? Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to, which isn't rational. Like, you know, so now. you were really panicking. Yeah, and, and I was pregnant and slight vulnerable. Like one of the risks of having your waters artificially ruptured is that um, the baby can come down really suddenly and you can have a cord prolapse. And then I would have been rushed off for a crash C-section. I was like, and my partner wouldn't even be here. Like, How did you feel about the prospect of having a, C- a C-section like, with your knowledge? And It was like kind of like it felt like the worst case scenario. Like I just didn't want it. I knew, you know, like I don't think there's I don't think there's ever anything wrong with researching, but because I'd done all this research, I knew, you know, there are worse outcomes for both mum and baby, like short-term and long-term if you have a cesarean. Really, really was like, I can't, I, I just don't want a cesarean. Were yes. your contractions then kicking off naturally? Was your body taking over? Yeah, they were actually. So I, I did actually get into, they, they didn't break my waters. Um, I, I put my foot down and I'm really proud of myself about that. Kylie got there and we went for a walk and I hadn't had a chance to wash my hair. And I was like, I'm going to go back to my room and wash my hair. And this is just to give an idea of like how quickly things ramped up. So I washed my hair and the contractions were getting a bit more and a bit more. And I put on a full face of makeup and then I was like, just feel a bit, I need to brush my hair, but I just feel a bit funny. I was like, my feet are cold. I'm just going to put on my socks. And when I bent over to put on my socks, my waters broke. Um, And then the contractions really... Um, started to kick in and my hair never got brushed and um, well, one of the things they'd said to me to try and convince me to have my waters broken that morning was that they told me and I found out this wasn't true but they told me that I wasn't allowed to contact I wasn't allowed to have my MGP support until my waters broke which is that it's not true it was just coercive they just wanted me to have wow. my waters broken um, yeah never heard of that before that's, <laughs> that's insane wow. yeah I know. And, you know, again, in a kind of rational headspace, I would have been like, that doesn't sound right. But you just, you kind of just do what they say because you're there and you're like, I've got to do this process. Another thing that one of them said to me was, you know, Rosalie, you've agreed to this induction. You really need to get on board and, you know, follow through. So they really weren't happy about me kind of trying to take back some of the control. Um, but yeah, so my water's broke and the way it works in this MGP um, when you're getting induced is that they don't send um, your normal midwife until you're in active labour. So when you're in early labour, they send just like a different MGP midwife who's just in the hospital that day. So I hadn't met this person before and she was amazing. Like she was um, so supportive and really sympathetic to the fact that I didn't want to be there and I didn't want to be going through this but also really knowledgeable about the hospital. And so she did some things that I didn't love, but what she was trying to do basically was trying to help me get into active labour without having to accept any more interventions. So she was like, you know, they're going to want you to go on the drip, but if you can get into active labour, we can potentially avoid that. And so she was like, you need to walk up and down the stairs. So we just walked up and down the stairs so much and that did help the contractions a lot. I had a TENS machine on and that was amazing. Um, I thoroughly recommend TENS machines to anybody who will listen. But I eventually we, I just got exhausted. Then my contractions slowed down. So then she said, oh, you could pump, you could do nipple stimulation. So I did that. So I pumped like 
80 mils of colostrum or something just extreme whilst I was in labor and it was again it was the same thing when I was pumping I was getting like the kind of right number of contractions you know the three or four and ten minutes whatever it is but as soon as I stopped I was like okay like my nipples are sore I've been pumping for like an hour about six o'clock so about 24 hours after we'd started I went on the drip and I was devastated I was really I was crying and I was like I didn't want to do this and I really felt like I'd failed why did you feel that about the drip I've made pretty obvious as well that like this is kind of taking it up the next step in terms of risk because then they're like oh now you have to have the constant monitoring Mm. so then that was making me feel like I'm putting my baby in danger by doing this I had this overwhelming sense of being trapped the whole time I was there and when they put the drip on you know obviously you're attached to the drip but then also they couldn't get the wireless monitors to work and so I was just stuck like on the football next to the bed makes Um, you feel like you can't be in that that full active labor and yeah your physical movement you feel restrained to a degree yeah but you know I guess I was pretty happy that I got into active labor before starting the drip and you know I was still feeling relative I was trying to use all the calm breath stuff we'd learned and I was trying to Kylie was really good. She was just saying all the affirmations over and over and we set up the space really beautifully. Um, so I was still feeling pretty positive and I was kind of just like, you know, this is a really hard thing I've got to get through, but it's going to be okay. About eight o'clock that night, like the backup midwife, who I, I had met a couple of times, came in and she was really, really great as well. And she got the wireless monitors working. So then I went in the shower and that was amazing. It was really cute. They like turn all the lights off and put down like soft mats in the shower and kind of made like a little cozy cave. That sounds actually, it was nice. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that part to a certain extent. Like, you know, and the midwife was amazing because, you know, the monitoring would slip off and she'd be in there just getting completely saturated, like getting into the right spot. So yeah, it's not like I had no good support during this labor. The, problem really from that point I mean obviously being induced is much more painful than um, not but I was coping okay with the pain but it was the tiredness that kind of started to get me kind of equal parts hilarious and also terrifying that I had been reading a book at that time and the book was um, set in a family who were undertakers and (laughs) I was so tired that I thought I was a character from the book and I was like, thought that I had to go and get this like dead body ready to like be buried. And I was just like, so, so confused and like jumping in and out of like reality and not. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this, I can't have a baby like this. Like this is not going to work. I basically decided I'm going to ask for um, a VE. And if my cervix is over eight centimetres, then I think I can do this. And if it's not, then I need an epidural so that I can get some sleep. This is what I've decided. Um, And Kylie, bless her heart, was like, no, remember, you don't want an epidural. Why don't we do this instead? Why don't, you know, what about some counter pressure? And I was like, no, Kylie, like, I'm not trying anything else. (laughs) I'm not trying gas. I'm not doing anything. I was like, this, I need to sleep. How many centimetres were you, Rosalie, when they did a VE? Oh, six, I'm pretty sure. How was Bub coping by this point? He was completely perfect the whole labour. It's pretty amazing, really. Um, Had the epidural. Oh, we knew the baby was posterior as well. So I was having back labour this whole time. So I put the peanut ball between my legs 
basically the next contraction with my like hips open like that all of this like amniotic fluid just came gushing out I think that the original water's breaking was maybe just like a hind water or something like that and so all and the midwife was like this is amazing like my stomach basically like completely like just shrunk in um and completely changed and I actually made really good progress then so I think that was about one o'clock in the morning I had a few hours sleep and then maybe woke up at five or something like that and I was also at eight centimeters dilated in the midwife it was really funny she was like oh wow I think we're going to have a vaginal birth today and I was like oh (laughs) is it that uncommon (laughs) (laughs) wow (laughs) and yeah so I felt like really positive I'd had this little sleep and I felt great and I watched the sunrise and I was like oh this is such a beautiful day to have a baby like you know kind of thinking like this isn't what I wanted but like you know it's going to be okay don't know exactly what happened or when it happened but when the doctors did their rounds that morning they were like you know been in labor for a really long time they did a VE and they found that he had turned back out of the optimal position and he'd got stuck so he got stuck in a position that's called deep transverse arrest his head was in my pelvis on the wrong angle and so the way they explained to me afterwards they said it wasn't that he was big they'll kind of like a combination of all the factors like if he'd been a little bit smaller then he might not have he might have been able to wiggle out of that position um and if he hadn't been in that position he would have been fine to come out wedged himself in sort of the wrong way and i don't know if this is true or not Um, This is just my conjecture, but I've looked up, you know, I searched all the birth groups and stuff like that. I've only ever seen stories of people with deep transverse arrest who get induced. So I, my kind of gut feeling is that, you know, our bodies are really amazing and clever. And I think that normally if a baby's in the wrong position, you know, our bodies will work and the contractions will, you know, slow down or change to kind of help the baby turn into a better position but I think in my case because they were those artificial contractions and they, they had turned the um, drip right up they said while I was asleep they said oh yeah we turned the drip right up and so I think that he just just got really jammed down into that and kind of didn't have the chance to move the doctor recommended then she said oh she she tried to manually turn him because I said well what are our other options and she said I can try and manually turn him and that wasn't successful um, she said, you know, I would really recommend having a C-section now. And I said, well, no, I don't want one. <laughs> Give me some more time. So then the midwife tried to turn the baby. She said, oh, I've been doing this a bit longer than that doctor. I might be able to have a bit of luck. And so she couldn't turn him. Um, and then we got onto the Spinning Babies website and we did all the things. So I was doing forward-leaning inversions and rebozo and we got me up on all fours and the epidurals don't have a particularly strong effect on me. So he was super, super stuck. Oh, and, I, and I had gone to nine centimetres as well they, when they did one of the checks. But they said my cervix was starting to swell. By this point, my known midwife had finished her shift. And so I was back to the midwife from the day before, who was amazing. And she said to me, Rosalie, have you heard of a maternal assisted caesarean? And I was like, yes but I know you can't have them for an emergency cesarean don't even talk to me about that and she said we don't know that she said let's talk to the doctor let's ask the doctor and so when the doctor came back in and said you know no there's been no no change at all um she said 
Rosalie, was there something you were going to ask? Was there a question you were going to ask? And I was like, no, I don't want to ask it. I don't want to ask it. And she said, well, can I ask it? Um, and she asked the doctor and she said, have you ever um, heard of a maternal assisted cesarean? And the doctor said, yeah, actually. She said, I've done some. She said, so I've only been working in this hospital for um, six weeks, but I came from Tasmania and I used to do them all the time. And she said, now we'll have to get everyone in the room to agree, but I'm really happy to, if everything's okay, I'm really happy to do that. And I like to tell this story because most of the time people think exactly what I thought, <laughs> that you, if you're having an emergency cesarean, all of your options go out the window, but they don't necessarily. It felt like everything was so, so rushed then. And a little tip, whether you're a religious person or not, if you say, um, my partner and I need to pray, everyone will leave the room <laughs> and give you a little bit of um, alone time for a, for a few minutes. So that's what we did. And we tried that's to really. That's a good tip. Yeah. <laughs> like, atheists should know this too. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone should know. Um, yeah, that was really good. And we tried, because I really, I was like, I want my baby to come into a world that's filled with as much happiness as possible. So even though this is really hard, and this is not what I want. We tried really hard to kind of, you know, use like the calm birth breathing exercises and all that stuff to make it as positive as we could. The midwife was just amazing. She basically bullied people into um, doing this maternal assistance there. And she's like, come on, come on. We've never done one here before. Don't you want to be part of history? So like this nurse who was like, oh, I don't know. It doesn't sound safe to me. And yeah, so they prepped me all because he was down so he was like so stuck in there the first thing they had to do um and I found it a bit scary because I'd never heard of it before but they she had to put her hand like up inside me and kind of like push him out but it was it felt so forceful like my whole body was like it was like someone was punching me to like push his head out of my pelvis um and I found out later they didn't say to me at the time but I found out later that his head was um so stuck in there that they'd had to call like a senior OB into supervise but yeah so um, I was all kind of had my hands up there was a midwife holding each hand ready to put the sterile gloves on and then they I guess did the incision and then something happened I'm not quite sure on what but something happened that it kind of went from like like a normal speed kind of cesarean to like oh we've got to really quickly get this baby out and so my midwife saw that happening and then just started shoving these gloves on my hands like, it's really funny when I look at the photos, like my fingers aren't even in the holes properly. So I didn't actually get to pull him like out of the incision. Like, you know, you see the ones on Instagram and the doctor kind of brings the baby half out and then the mum brings the baby out the rest of the way. So she had to get him about a bit too quickly for that. But basically I just reached forward and she just put the baby, put Birdie straight into my hands. And that was pretty cool, really. So um, I just then pulled him up over the um, thing and up onto my chest and oh, we'd done vaginal seeding and I'd also got amniotic fluid and like wiped it all over my chest because I'm like that's what would have happened in a vaginal birth it would have all kind of sloshed up there so I wanted to make it smell really nice for him I felt really guilty about this for a really long time because they we'd said that we wanted to announce um, the sex and someone said oh what is it Rosalie what is it and um out loud I said oh it's a boy and in my head I was I had this really coherent thought of like why are you asking me that why do you think I care this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me it was my like kind of response um which I felt that um 
you know, the sex of the baby to sec was secondary to everything else. Going yeah. On. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, and did you feel happy though that you were holding him on your chest? Like, how did that feel? Or were you sort of still conflicted by everything else that? No, I that what the it changed for me when I just looked into his eyes and I was just it just overcome and I was just like, this is we've known each other forever. I was it just was this amazing feeling and. Because I had no one, you know, like, oh, you're having an induction. You're not going to have that natural rush of hormones. Oh, you've had an epidural. Oh, you've had a cesarean. So I was almost expecting it to not feel good and for there to not be a connection. And then, like, there was. And he was just perfect. He was huge. He was um, 4.77 <laughs> kilos. So it was, um, four, wow, 4.77. Yeah. Did you... Um, so does that, did that match up with their growth predictions or this talk of macrosomia and all of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I mean, a macrosomic baby, I think, is over four and a half kilos. So he was technically and he was um, what they said. But it was really interesting. They said to me afterwards it was only his position. They said there was plenty of room for him to come out. Um, okay. So they were good in that, in that aspect. Did you get and, delayed cord clamping? And was that one of your requests? I really wanted delayed cord clamping and he didn't get it because of the um, wanting to get him out so quickly. I'm not sure if it was him or if it was, so I had a um, pretty big, well, not, it was actually an average bleed for cesarean, but it felt um, big. Um, so that was probably the only unfortunate part about the actual cesarean is he needed a little bit of oxygen and they took him off, which really scared. This is a... Um, an interesting thing in terms of talking to your partner about birth I wasn't scared at all because I listened to so many stories of cesareans that I knew that like kind of lots of babies who have a who are born by cesarean need a bit of help with their breathing um, but Kylie didn't know that and so she thought something really badly was wrong with him and then I started paying attention to what was happening with my surgery and they were calling out how much blood I'd lost and I, um, I ended up losing a liter of blood but it really scared me and I didn't to me losing a liter of blood sounded just terrifying and I thought and I started feeling really faint and my eyes my vision started going a bit like black and blurry and I just at that moment I just thought oh this makes sense you know I, I couldn't get pregnant I lost those babies you know I had to be induced I had to have a cesarean I've been all these statistics of course I'm going to be the statistic that dies during their cesarean and I just thought this is it like I'm just I'm going to die and I didn't realize until months later that that's like a really traumatic thing to go through, even if it wasn't the reality, even if, you know, there actually wasn't any risk of that. But in my mind, I just remember looking up and craning my neck as far as I could and thinking if I just watch Kylie and the baby, I'll just watch them until I die. And then at least, you know, I'm dying watching the people I love so much. Um, obviously it wasn't true and they sorted everything out really quickly. And then Birdie came back and was on my chest and um, I didn't really, yeah, like I said, I didn't really kind of process that until months after the birth, um, probably because I was busy processing all the other things. Yeah, and that was how Birdie was born. I only stayed in hospital for 24 hours. I really, really wanted to go home and really advocated. They didn't want to kind of let me go home that early, but they I really advocated for that. And part of what I was saying was like, my mum can help me with breastfeeding. I don't need to be here because I found the hospital help really unhelpful. It felt so good to get home and just be able to do things on our terms. 
Before you were discharged, did you have a chat to the doctors or anyone at the hospital within your midwife about the birth? Was there anything that was touched on? Because I was in MGP, um, that meant that I was I had like two weeks of midwife visits at home. So we got to do a bit of debriefing there. So it was the two different midwives who had been my midwives through the pregnancy. Um, so that was helpful. Uh, one of the things I didn't say um, before was that I'd actually actually started planning my VBAC before the cesarean. So um, that's that same amazing midwife had said to me, like, you know, you can have a VBAC next time. This is going to be okay. And I was like, yes, but I can't. I was like, I really wanted a home birth next time and I'm not going to be able to do that. And she said, no. She said, you're not going to be able to do that through the hospital system, but if you get a private midwife, you can have a VBAC at home. And I'd also talked to the doctor and said, look, I when I kind of was signing the consent for the C-section and said, like, I really want a VBAC next time. And I've heard that there's something to do with double or single layer, you know, suturing. And she was like, yeah, like, I'll make it as good as I possibly can for a future VBAC. And so a midwife looked at my notes once and was like, yeah, she actually did do this a bit differently from normal. She's actually taken a lot of care when she stitched you up. And she said to me after the surgery, she said, it was a bit weird, but she was like, you know, just make sure that you don't get gestational diabetes next time and you can definitely have a VBAC. And I was like, but I didn't have gestational diabetes. <laughs> oh, maybe she made that assumption because of the big baby. Yeah, so she did. And she said, oh, you need to go and get another blood test. When you get your six-week check, do another GTT. Um, <laughs> and, like, wrote me out the form for it. And I was like, I am not doing this. Like, so I was like, he was big, like, from 20 weeks. Like, he wasn't big because I had he's just a big boy. Like, yeah. How did you feel in, in that postpartum period? about your birth in terms of processing it yeah so it was pretty rough Mm. I remember Kylie on her way back to the hospital the next day she called me and she was kind of crying a bit and was like oh you know I'm just so upset about what happens and something kind of like switched in my brain and I was like for some reason like it just wasn't rational but I was like I've got to be the strong one and I was started rationalizing I was like no it's fine like you know, it's what, it's what, how he's meant to be born and just kind of decided, I was like, I'm not going to get postnatal depression because like, that's how it works. You just decide you're not going to get it. Right. And then, you know, it magically won't happen. And so I basically fibbed when they did the, you know, like the Edinburgh, like it's pretty easy. If you don't want to be diagnosed with postnatal depression, you just lie and um, you don't get diagnosed. With it. But then over pretty quickly, really, it became pretty apparent that I was not in a good place. I was couldn't sleep at night thinking about it every day. It was like I'd wake up in the morning and, you know, when like something bad happens and then it just kind of hits you every morning when you wake up, you remember, oh, I had a cesarean. And I'd be calling Kylie just constantly throughout the day and I'd be saying, I don't remember. What, do you remember what happened between 9am and 11am? I can't remember what I would and I'd say. I was like, I don't remember. I've forgotten again. Why did they say I had to have a cesarean? Why was that? Like really just re like every day I was kind of reliving. I'd be like, and at this time, this is what was happening. And at this time, this is what was happening. And so um, over, over fixating on this, this one event and yeah, I had this intense, intense grief and just guilt as well. I just kept on thinking, I felt like, you know, I gave myself a really hard time because I was like, I know the risks of induction I know the cascaded interventions I knew all of that and I still said yes you know I how could I do that to my baby how could I let him down like that 
you know, and I used to think about others like, oh, that person, they didn't know. They weren't as educated as me. They didn't know that induction was risky, but I knew. And so I'm a bad person. Luckily, I guess, because I was so involved in birth kind of circles, I um, knew that PTSD was a thing and I reached out and got help when he was maybe four months old, I think. And I started seeing a, um, she's pretty amazing, actually. She's a like psychologist who's also a midwife um, and so she's got this amazing way of helping you through your birth and she can kind of explain from a midwifery perspective but then also from a psychology perspective kind of like what happened and then also like I suppose like give some help as to why you're reacting so she would have been able to give you a really good debrief of, of yeah your first birth then yes yeah and she was able I suppose to help me to say that like it's not actually a choice that I made. Like I was backed into a corner and she's like, you know, if you really look at it rationally, like if you'd said no, what would have happened? She's like, they would have gone to the next step of coercion, you know. She's like, it's it wasn't a free choice. Yeah. Um, that helped the one-year anniversary of his birth, so his birthday, and um, the few days around that was pretty hard. But once I got through that, I felt like things started to um, improve a lot after that first year. Like I felt like I've survived this first year. I can do anything. What were the tools that helped you come out of that? So she, she uses a particular kind of therapy. I think she developed it. So you basically write your birth story out um, in a notebook and then you write, like on one page you're writing the story, then the other page you're writing how you're feeling and Um, then she kind of works through that with you so that in itself was just really helpful and really kind of yeah put some things to rest for me but then it was also I think just turning it into something good so two days before his birthday so I guess the anniversary of um, the awful induction because you know I really I I look when we kind of analyzed it most of where the PTSD came from was that awful conversation with the doctor to start the induction more so than the actual cesarean and so on the anniversary of that happening I just gave myself that day to just really grieve but also to put in a complaint to APRA about that doctor and I had already put in a complaint to the hospital as well about how I was treated and so I think doing things like that is helpful for me. What drove you to sort of um, put the complaint in and and did anyone guide you through that process? I talked to my psychologist about it a bit and she said, you know, like most people don't have the energy and the ability to do that. So if you do have that, it's actually worth quite a lot. Like there might be for every 10 people who have that experience, only one makes that complaint. And she said, you know, it's an individual complaint. Like don't expect that it's going to have a huge change, but you know, you're not going to achieve anything by staying silent if you say something if enough of us say something, then maybe one day there will be change and maybe one day people will start to go, oh, we're getting all this feedback, like maybe we should change the way we operate a bit. Good on you for doing that, Rosalie. Do you know what has become of that complaint? Yeah, so nothing really came of it. They talked to the doctor in question and there was no real concrete outcome of it and I did feel really disappointed when they kind of rang me up and said, you know, no action's been taken. but. I suppose all I can hope is that that maybe this stops made her think a little bit. Maybe she won't do that to someone else again or maybe, you know, after a few times of hearing that kind of feedback, she might change. I don't know. 
and it's actually very re-triggering like especially when I got the result from that like that really really triggered my PTSD because I don't know if I said that before I was I did get a diagnosis of PTSD from the birth Mm. Um, and so yeah that did um really I had you know a few really hard days less yeah I still do think it was worth doing because it's it's better than doing nothing really how did you go from that stage to then falling pregnant again did you want to take us to your second pregnancy and that journey and how that all came about yeah so I um I never really considered well I did consider a little bit not having another baby but I just had always knew that I wanted Bertie to have a sibling we both did after that first year when things were starting to feel a lot easier and a lot lighter I also connected in with, like we had decided we were going to have a home birth with a private midwife and I connected in with a couple of private midwives um, and also with um, our lovely doula. Really, yeah, I had a lot of hope and a lot of excitement about having another baby and just doing things really differently and kind of um, taking a little mantra Oh, I can't remember what it was, but I was basically like, I'm so excited to have this next baby, but I've got all of this wisdom from my first pregnancy and birth that I'm going to be able to use and take on. Was there ever any discussion or point um, where your partner considered carrying the baby this time? No, no. I think she had really kind of gone off the idea of um, carrying a baby um, by that point and Do you think uh, that also she- knew how much I loved being pregnant, so... <laughs> Do you think that she was affected in any way by your first birth? Yeah, she had a um, a lot of guilt, like not so much for him but around me that kind of she was like, I should have taken you home, I should have protected you, I should have put my foot down and said, you know, no, we're not going back to the hospital. My son broke his leg when I was pregnant with Mabel um, and she took him to one of the hospital visits afterwards and she was like, oh, wow, like I just, it, it felt really hard going back into that space it it really I think birth trauma just does have such a huge impact on the whole family yeah so we had already chosen our private midwife um, by the time we got pregnant Um, so second time around we used my egg just for something different Um, so I did the IVF and I felt you know I really kind of I believe in that idea of like calling your baby in Um, and that our babies kind of choose us and Mabel was just so excited to be in the world and pretty much when Bertie turned one I just had this little voice going like mama I'm ready mama (laughs) and (laughs) she was the very first transfer that we did Um, I got pregnant with her which was just such a different journey from getting pregnant with Bertie yeah it was actually really healing of that kind of infertility sort of trauma Um, to just get pregnant and it be, yeah, just really simple and joyful. Kylie was often quite worried and she would say to me, you know, what are we going to do? Like what if what if this it doesn't work out and what if you have another cesarean? And I would say it's okay because this pregnancy itself has been so healing and so beautiful and I've been respected. Like it'll be, it, like it wouldn't matter. The outcome wasn't kind of the goal in terms of it being a VBAC or a cesarean that wasn't what was important did you do anything differently this time obviously you've gone with a private midwife but in terms of birth preparation you did a lot um, in your first birth was there anything else that you did for you to prepare your mind and body that was a little bit different if at all 
than the last time? Yeah, um, so I went to the chiropractor. Um, I'd never been to a chiropractor before. One thing that was a bit unhelpful after I had Birdie was that my midwife had said to me, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I really wish that, you know, we're not allowed to recommend um, chiropractic care for our patients, but, you know, I really really wanted to and I really wish that you'd um, known to go to a chiropractor and I was like oh my gosh like, that's not helpful to say now that would have been helpful yeah <laughs> um but yeah so I went to a chiropractor um I've actually got like my pelvis I've got like scoliosis so I just thought it's probably a really good idea to just get things aligned and yeah my chiro is actually also a doula and so that was amazing to kind of be able to talk to her about birth um, every few weeks as I was going in for treatment um, I had my doula as well Brooke um, and we did some like planning sessions and stuff in advance which was really helpful to what help. made you mm-hmm. decide to get a doula this time oh well I mean they're evidence-based for starters um, they're you know like if doulas were a drug like you'd have to give them to everyone because they reduce you know c-sections um, so much and other complications I kept on being going like, oh, I should do this course. I should do that course. And what about optimal maternal positioning? But then I also was like, I don't want to be thinking about all of that. I want someone else to be able to be supporting and who's really knowledgeable. And I don't know if you guys have read Rachel Reed's book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage. Um, I read that book while I was pregnant with Mabel. And um, one of the things that um, Rachel Reed talks about is the, I think they call them gossips, who would go and support um, women like traditionally when they were giving birth. And I just love that idea that like kind of historically and traditionally, there's always been supportive people around women. So yeah, you've got your midwives who like know you so much and are just so skilled, but then you've also got these people who have a different kind of knowledge. Wanted, I just wanted it all. Like I just wanted to have a really supportive team and to know that I'd I suppose tried everything and um, I didn't do any other courses. I read a few books. Like I said, I read Rachel Reed's book and um, listened to lots of positive stories. And it was always my plan. I that 36 weeks I got off social media completely and I Why was that? Because um, I wanted to shut out all the outside noise. I didn't want there to be, I didn't want to kind of accidentally come across like a really traumatic birth story or to be distracted. I just wanted to be. Um, yeah give myself some space and I loved it I was also due at the end of April and um, as you guys would know April is cesarean awareness month and I'd found that really triggering the previous two Aprils and so I was like um, I think cesareans are amazing and I think people should be proud of their cesareans but I couldn't be in that space yeah what were your thoughts on some of the commentary I guess surrounding CAM or cesarean awareness month oh it's often the people who haven't had cesareans who are posting about it who I find the most problematic. Like some, there's a kind of theme often that's like, don't worry if you've had a cesarean, that's still birth. And I'm like, yeah, I wasn't thinking it wasn't birth. Like I wasn't thinking I was less of a mum. Like <laughs> now I'm thinking it because you said it. <laughs> mm. yeah. Or people being yeah. really defensive of their cesarean. And I, I, I get that, but I also don't think it's necessary. I don't actually... Or maybe not helpful in, in the headspace you were in. Either. Yeah. I think the point of Caesarean Awareness Month has actually gotten lost. It was actually made up by ICANN 
Yeah. And the, the purpose of it was actually to address the alarming number of cesareans and the increase yeah. year on year. Yeah. This is in America, but it became sort of adopted, at, I guess, internationally because cesarean rates are often rising around the world. And we're seeing it here in Australia and understanding, you know, the effects that it, the negative effects that it can have. Unfortunately, that's just been sort of pushed yeah, under yeah. the rug. Yeah, almost glorifying sometimes can glorify the cesarean and depending on how you feel about your primary cesarean that can be really conflicting take us to the end of this second pregnancy and what happened there because I'd gone so overdue in quotation marks with Birdie I was expecting the same thing with Mabel and my midwife kept on saying well you know it's genetic so you've used a different egg for um, this baby so it might not be the same but I was really sure that I'd go past 41 weeks and I ended up going into labor at 38 weeks. Yeah, so I was actually meant to be having my last day of work the day that she was born because um, I was like, oh, I'm not going to go on maternity leave too early. I'll get really bored. Mm. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was the Easter weekend and I was preaching on Easter Sunday and I just couldn't, I got up and I was like, what is wrong with me? Like the words I'm saying don't make sense. Like this is... I was like, this is the worst sermon I've ever preached. How embarrassing to do that on Easter Sunday, like, you know, biggest day of the church calendar. Anyway, <laughs> it's like, that's weird. Didn't really think too much about it. And was like, you know, then the Monday was a public holiday, then Tuesday I was going to work and then I was going to be done. But then on the Monday, just had a little tiny bit of like pink discharge. And I was like, oh, I wonder what that is and Googled it. And it's like, you know, oh, it's just your body getting ready. So I was like, oh, yeah, don't think too much about it. And went to a family um, get together at um, a local playground with my sister and my brother and um, some people. And while we were there, I was just like starting to feel a bit restless and a bit uncomfortable. And I went to the toilet while we were there and I was like, oh, there's like quite a lot of this pink discharge. Um, but I thought enough of it that I sent a picture to my midwife and she was like, are you, are you having any cramps? And I was like, oh, you know, only like the same kind of cramps that I've been having, you know, for the last couple of weeks. Mm. And she was like, mm, okay, well, you know, keep an eye on things. Um, and then we had dinner at my sister's house and I could, I was like, what is the matter with their couch? It's so uncomfortable. Like never noticed that about their couch before that it's just, <laughs> I just <laughs> and they were like, are you okay? And I was like, oh, I just, my back really hurts. I just need to go home. I wrote to my daughter and I'm like, no, I'm, I kept on saying, you know, I'm, d I'm definitely not in labor. And then we got home and I put Bertie to bed and I thought, oh, I'll just give him a little bit of extra cuddles just in case I am in labor. So I started shifting a little bit and he'd um, wet his pants in the car on the way home. So I had to go and like take the car seat cover off. And um, then I texted my midwife and said, oh, I am having like cramps now. And she called me and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, well, it sounds like you might be in labor. And I was like, oh. Joe, I'm not in labour. Like, I just took the car seat cover off. Like, that was proof that I couldn't possibly be in labour. And she was like, oh, okay, well, you know, in my experience, normally if you've had a show and, you know, you've started to cramp, you know, normally that's labour. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm just going to go to bed now. And, oh, and she was like, did you just have another one then on the phone? And I'd had, like, three contractions while I was talking to her. And we were, I was so disorganised because I was – going to have my last day of work and then I was going to get everything ready so I didn't even have like the attachment like to fill up the birth pool you know to attach it to the laundry tap and stuff so I was like frantically like texting I didn't have the tens machine yet 
But I was like, well, Kylie, just in case, I'm sure I'm not in labor, but just in case you go to bed. And then I pretty quickly realized, oh, no, this this is labor. But then I kept, I was like, no, but this is probably prodermal labor. I'm going to be one of those people that has prodermal labor for like weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, that's annoying. And so I texted my daughter at like 11 o'clock that night. And I was like, oh, I still don't know if this is the real thing, but I'm really, you know, I'm really struggling. And do you think it's too early to get into the shower? And she was like, no, that sounds like really good progress. Like you should hop in the shower. I love, because you know, I didn't have a TENS machine. So my plan had always been use a TENS machine for as long as possible before using water. I was like, no, I'm just going to hop in the shower. And that was amazing. And I was really different from what I thought. Like I had, I mean, for starters, I thought I'd have like a really long early labor and I didn't. But I also thought that I'd want to be really active. And I was like, yeah, I'll be, I um, had borrowed like a birth sling and I was like, I'll be out on the deck, like looking at my beautiful garden and like laboring. And I just didn't want, I wanted to be in the dark, in the quiet, in the shower, like just kind of hunched down, like focusing on it. And um, I was vocalizing. So I was kind of doing like a low humming sound, which I'd heard, I'd heard on a podcast that if you like hum rather than breathe, you can kind of, you can keep that going a lot longer than a breath. And at about midnight, I woke Kylie up. And I was like, I can't do this alone anymore. I need you. I think we need, I think we need to call Brooke. I think we need a doula. And I was like, I just don't know what to do. So I had these little like kind of moments of crisis. And it was really nice to have people around to just reassure, like you're doing everything right. And yeah, so Brooke came and um, she looked after me for a while that she sent Kylie back to bed. Eventually I got out of the shower and then we put the tens on. Um, and that was amazing again. And I was getting pretty tired by now because I hadn't obviously gone to sleep. So she helped me to get all snuggly and warm and lay down on the couch on my side with like some pillows in between my legs. From memory, I only had a couple of contractions. And then on a contraction, my waters released. And it was like the movies. It was just huge. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, we're going to need to clean this up. <laughs> Stood up and there was just, it. there was so much water everywhere and every contraction. So it would just like squirt out of me, like someone turning on a tap. So we just got everything cleaned up and I went back to the same kind of having a bit of a rest. How did the contractions compare to that induction feeling? Really different. Um, I Mabel was posterior again, so I was having the back labor again, but I felt really in control the whole time. So it's hard to know like what is what was just the mental game and what what's the physical reality, but it was hard but I really enjoyed labor this time. Like it felt I just felt so kind. I kept on thinking like, you know, oh this will get really hard soon and it it kind of didn't. Like it did and it didn't. Mm. After a while of lying down, I thought pretty in tune with my body and what was going on I was like I, th- I think I want this to speed up a bit I think I'd like this baby to be born sooner rather than later and I thought I need to be upright I was like this isn't going to be fun but I need to be on the toilet <laughs> um, and I think Brooke had also said you know make sure you go to the toilet and so I went and sat on the toilet for quite a long time and I was in my head, I was like, I'm just going to sit here until I'm pushing. could hear them setting up the birth floor and they kept on coming in and checking on me and bringing me drinks and stuff. Was Bertie there who was looking after him? Oh, he was miraculously sleeping through the night for like oh, half my wow. life. 
<laughs> um, and then um, my sister came over at about 5.30 in the morning to be there when he woke up. And so the, I wanted him to be there for the birth. Okay. Um, but then at around about 6.30, I decided I just had a feeling I didn't want him to be there and it turned out to be the right feeling. Was that yeah, the gut feeling that you had? Yeah, there was just something that I think I subconsciously knew a long time before I consciously knew or anyone knew um, mm. that it was going to be, we were going to have a little bit of a curveball at the end. Started realising, I was like, oh, I think I'm getting pretty close to pushing. I was like, this baby feels super low and I'm just getting that, you know, I need a poo kind of feeling, but not heaps and <laughs> And then they find, I felt like they took about seven years to fill up the birth pool, um, but I'm assured that wasn't the case. Um, <laughs> I was just like a whingy baby. I was like, why does it got to be full? Um, I have heard anything like, from home birth stories from Mel and everyone else we've spoken to. It is fill your birth pool early. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently it's a forgotten thing. So Yeah. Well, I think as well, like it's actually really good that I I had to be on like because I just I'm yeah. I'm sure that I completely don't. I like, think the other thing down. is you you in in labor your sense of time is so different. Like it's it's yeah. um yeah sense of reality. And I was being time. like a bit sneaky as well because I was like I know they're not going to let me get in the birth pool too early, and I know they're not going to call Joe too early. So I was like, yeah. I, when they tell me that Joe's on her way. That's when I've got to know that baby's nearly here. Oh, so it's strategic. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little bit yeah, strategic as yeah. well. And so I got into the pool, I think around 6.30. So just after Birdie left, I hopped into the pool and it was like amazing. And, you know, just, oh, just felt so nice to be in there. And, you know, because I had been kind of blocked from going into the pool with um, Bertie's birth, it just felt like really redeeming to be like, okay, I'm having this birth on my terms. And now for some reason, just like getting into the pool, I was like, yes. Like after I'd been in there for a while, um, Joe arrived. And so she brought in all of the, you know, the oxygen and all that kind of stuff. And um, it was all just really calm and beautiful. The second midwife arrived, I hadn't met her before, but she was amazing. Yeah, we're good to go. Like I was bearing down and I don't remember saying this, but my doula said that while I was still in the pool, she's like, you said this really interesting thing. And I had said, I just don't know how I'm going to get this baby out. I just don't know how I'm going to do it. She's like, just the tone of your voice when you said that was really interesting. It wasn't just like a normal kind of, um, you know, person in labor sort of a um, way that I said it. I don't know how long I was in the birth for, maybe an hour. I think I got out and I went to the toilet. I sat in the toilet for a bit longer and then I came back and I didn't want to go back in the pool. Um, and so I just kind of laboured, like um, leaning up against my kneeling on the ground with my arms on the couch. Uh, when I talked to Joe about it, I said, you know, I want to, to try and follow what my body is doing first um, and then I want to ask for help if I want some help with positions and stuff like that. And so I did ask for some help. And so we started trying different positions and all different things. And I started to really lose confidence. And I was like, I'm never going to do this. You know, I'm never going to get my baby out. And that was so, oh, it was just so beautiful to be in that space. And I'm like, no, Rosie, we can see from outside that your baby is moving down there so low. And I said, just put your hand inside. And you're going to be able to feel the top of your baby's head. And I was like, oh, okay. 
this is cool. And so I, um, one of the things that I had really wanted to do was like, I want to be the first person to touch my baby. Um, and so I was. <laughs> and I put my hand in and I was like, that's so strange. That's just not what I thought the top of the baby's head would feel like. <laughs> what did it feel like? <laughs> it felt just like a slimy, like, mucous membrane you know like the difference between yeah. you know, the of your mouth and like your if your yes. cheek is wet in the shower that feels different still from the inside of your cheek yeah and you know this and so I was just like it just feels like I'm touching just like my vagina and I'm like, <laughs> like I was like even if the baby doesn't have hair like I think there'd be a bit of texture at the top of their head like I was like should it feel really soft and they were like oh just press it a bit harder like it'll be soft and then it'll be hard you'll feel the baby's head and so I like I went in a bit deeper and I was like, I can feel something hard, but it's like a ridge. It's, I was like, and I was trying to think, I'm like, I know that like the skull like changes shape, but you wouldn't get a feel like the edge of that. I was like, just, I was just so confused. I was like, what am I feeling? And I had a couple more contractions and I had been saying, I think the baby's in the wrong position. And they're all saying, no, no, no. And then it's so nice with a private midwife and when you have a good relationship that like I literally don't even remember if I said it or Joe said it first but we were like we need to do a cervical check we need to see what's happening but Kylie could see her face and she was like Joe looked in there and she was like stumped so Joe couldn't tell what she was looking at she was like that's not the top of the baby's head she was like is that an ear and then for a while she's like is it a bottom got the other midwife to come and have a look and they were really puzzled for a couple of minutes what were you um, thinking at that time I was just because I had to go on my back to have the cervical check yeah. you could get a good look it, the contractions were a lot harder for me so I was just yeah. really concentrating on them then Joe realized that it was Mabel's mouth so it was her little mouth and a little nose um just coming out that she could see which is called face presentation and it's really really rare so it's about one in 800 um, births, a face presentation. Joe said she'd been to, I think, a thousand births, and this was the first time she'd seen a face presentation. Wow. Um, and the other midwife hadn't seen a face presentation. Um, all the midwives, all the local midwives, um, have a real kind of close knit. And so they knew that one of the other midwives, coincidentally, a few weeks before, had had a face presentation at a home birth. So they're frantically text messaging her and saying, what do we do? And really hard, obviously, but also like really sweet. Like everyone was just trying to figure out and they're like, what about this spinning baby's move? And oh, we should do a sideline release. And then maybe we can make enough space in the pelvis for the baby's head to tip down. And because it was just like in my living room, they're trying to work this stuff out. And Joe like picked up this like little like mouse puppet. And she's like using this like puppet to be like, and if the baby's fit this way and is it this way? <laughs> Because um, with face presentation, if the baby is, it makes a difference which way they are. So if they're um, in the kind of normal position in their face, uh, what's called anterior, um, they have to be born by cesarean, basically. Um, but if they're posterior and face presentation, they can come out. So they were basically trying to figure out what position she was in. And they're like, oh, yeah, she's posterior. This, you know, she can come out. We didn't know we had a big girl. Um, and so we were doing all of these different, you know, so I'm, doing like forward leaning inversions off the couch and they'd been feeding me this honey water and so I was just like throwing up honey water oh like it. it was just like like it was lovely but it was also like super chaotic like trying to get this baby into a better position so that she could 
Did you try the Walter's position as well with spinning babies? Yeah, yeah. They were kind of like, Rosalie, are you willing to try this? It's going to be really hard. And I'd be like, yes, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And then we tried everything. And then I was like, guys, what about Walter's? And someone said, what's Walters? And then someone's like, Rosalie, do you really want to do that? <laughs> um, and that, So we went into the bedroom then and that wasn't successful. We had to make the call then to um, go into the hospital. That was obviously not what I wanted to do <laughs> at all. Um, and there was a beautiful quote that was on one of your podcast episodes. I think Caitlin's midwife. <laughs> said to her something about about it's one thing to push out your baby in the comfort of your living room but it's um it's a real act of bravery is um going to the hospital like to the surrender yeah the surrender of motherhood yes yeah um and I resonate with that so strongly because it was I felt really good and really okay about it but I was like this is huge I'm going back to this place which has traumatized me over and over again and I'm going to go back there now to have my baby and were you allowed to go back in with your doula and with your private midwife or what were the regulations surrounding that uh yeah so they still had COVID restrictions for one support person but we knew from a couple of other home birth transfers um that it happened locally that my midwife would be let in but not my doula one of the midwives called the hospital and explained what was going on. One of them called the ambulance. When my midwife called the hospital, they obviously gave her a bit of a hard time and said, what? You've got a V-back at home without constant monitoring? What? And they said to her on the phone, basically, yeah, we don't do that here. That's an automatic cesarean. We don't do face presentation. Yeah, she talked to me about that. And she's like, you know, when they go in, they're going to want you to have a cesarean. And so that really switched the focus. You know, like all of that prep work that you do for labour, it actually works. So it might sound like, oh, the breathing and the affirmations don't work. But when I have been labouring and going, every contraction brings my baby closer and breathing through them and humming through them, it was so manageable. When I was told over the phone, you're having a cesarean, it was like, well, this contraction's not bringing my baby closer. <laughs> this contraction is just awful. <laughs> And they started hurting so much worse. And then, of course, in the ambulance, I had to lie on my back on the stretcher. And so that was so much worse. So the actual ambulance ride was horrible. And um, they gave me a green whistle. And I was just like so angry. I was like, this isn't working. It's not working. What's the matter with this? And one of the ambos is like, you just have to breathe through it. And then the other one's like, it's not going to work. It's designed for little kids and old ladies. It's not designed for everyone. <laughs> And I was like, oh, thanks. At least you're honest with me. Got to the hospital and they put us in the COVID room because they're like, we don't know if you don't have COVID, even though you've both got negative rats. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this COVID room that had like no stuff in it. Like, no, they didn't even have like a tourniquet because they wanted to redo my cannula and there was not a tourniquet there. They were getting Kylie to like squeeze my upper arm to like pump the blood. It was very, very strange. <laughs> And this obstetrician came in and we later found out she was like the head of obstetrics and she said, Rosalie, we need to give you some pain relief. But first of all, I want to know, do you want a cesarean or do you want a tricky vaginal birth? And I was like, tricky vaginal, tricky vaginal. vaginal." (laughs) Yeah, she did an ultrasound to check that um, Mabel was posterior and it was safe to have a face presentation vaginal delivery. (laughs) Um, and 
yes yes that's right that's what you're doing you're putting your head right back like that <laughs> um she still does it like she like always has her like neck like backwards ah. like looking back oh, that's um, interesting it is interesting oh I had some fentanyl which was a mistake because it didn't take away any pain and just made me feel sick um while I was waiting for the epidural and then I had the epidural and it was just like the perfect epidural like it was like oh this is just taking away the back way but like I can still feel all the contraction and I was like look I can wiggle my toes the obstetrician's plan was legs in stirrups and she would do an episiotomy and because she was like you know because if your legs are in stirrups there's more space and my midwife and I just like looked at each other and kind of inwardly rolled our eyes we're like no that's the opposite that'll make less space and my midwife said to me afterwards, she was like, oh, I just wasn't worried because I knew there was going to be plenty of space. She's like, I knew your pelvis and that it would be fine, even if you were in that position. <laughs> yeah, just started pushing. And they wanted to do like, they were trying to do coach pushing. And I was like, this is like, okay, now hold your breath and push. And I was like, this is so stupid. And they're like, you've got to push for longer. And I'm like, but you're making me hold my breath and I can't hold my breath for any longer than that. And I was just like, this is so weird and strange. Why are we doing this? Um, and I just feel like I couldn't push her hard enough. I couldn't push her down enough. And then somebody said to me, hey, Rosie, get angry. And I was like, I am angry. This coach pushing is stupid. And so I, st- <laughs> I started, I stopped holding my breath and I started roaring. Like I had no voice the next day. I was roaring like, so. and it's amazing. You, when you are making a sound, instead of just holding your breath, you can push for so much longer and stronger and they're like yeah now you're doing it right now you're doing it and I was like yes um I think around about that time um she cut the episiotomy so she cut it quite a bit earlier than you would usually cut an episiotomy so it was a bit more intense um said to me okay now if the hand gets to the I think it was to the nine she's like if the hand gets to the nine you know then I'm going to use the the vacuum you know so try and get the baby out before then and I was like, oh, no, just I give up. Just use the vacuum already. And she was like, no, no. Like every time you push, you're getting this baby out more and more. I'm pretty sure you can do it. Because then I could feel every time I had a contraction, I'm like, oh, she's coming out more and more and more. And of course, it was a little face that was coming out. So it's not like the top of her head um, coming out. So I looked at these pictures of yeah, like her face just like coming out of me directly posterior. So just looking up at the ceiling. Um, wow. Did the hospital change their mind about doing a a face presentation vaginal delivery? Yeah, so what happened is that the person, the doctor who spoke to my midwife on the phone was like a a reg. Um, And so they they were just going by the kind of go by the policy and right, that, yeah. um, because she was a consultant and the head of obstetrics she's able to kind of step outside of that so um, it I think kind of really goes to show yeah just to like don't ever take one person's word for yeah always like, ask for a consultant's opinion if you're not yeah. sure, always ask for a consultant um, is and my... always asking for that second opinion yeah. I guess also um, with the epidural was that her suggestion because was she anticipating that if this ends in the cesarean, we can get you to theatre quicker or was it more to do with your comfort um, yeah. for the episiotomy? Like what was the sort of reasoning behind? I think um, it was those second two because I was in, like like I said, the pain had really gotten the better of me by the time I got to the hospital. Yeah, like I mean, I obviously didn't want a epidural, but it wouldn't have been, I don't think, very ethical to especially not do an episiotomy that was um, that kind of big. 
Um, as it was, because the epidural was not working on me, I asked her for more, um, like for a local as well, because I could still feel. She was like, no, you can just feel pressure. And I was like, no, I can definitely feel pain. Like this is not, do not cut me without <laughs> doing some local as well. But yeah, so her, I pushed her little head out and she had the cord wrapped around her neck. So uh, but that wasn't an issue. Um, she just kind of looped that off, I think. And then the obstetrician, I'm a bit disappointed. I would have preferred to have like another contraction and push her body out. But she just kind of pulled her out at that point. So it was really funny. The hospital midwife was like, oh, pull him up onto your chest. And my midwife was like, oh, they wanted to announce the sex. And she was like, oh, no, I didn't say the sex. Um and so I lifted her up and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Mabel. It's Mabel. Because I had decided when I was like like 13, I was like, I want, if I have a girl, I want Mabel as a name. So I was like really set on the name. And I just couldn't believe it. Like I was. She's so crazy. calm just now. She's just staring <laughs> straight ahead. And, and the whole time she's been quite calm. Yeah. Well, that's what she was like doing. Like her heartbeat didn't just wasn't affected at all the whole labor she was yeah she's gorgeous (laughs) (laughs) I know hi (laughs) like it was so amazing I was like I don't know like you think that you believe in yourself and then for me anyway it was like when I actually had my v-back I was like oh like now I really know that I could do it you know now that I've done it (laughs) that last like one percent of down (laughs) Yeah, it was so exciting. She was very, very bruised. So because her obviously it's not normal for their face to be on your perineum and getting um, all those contractions on it. So her lips were really swollen and her face was bruised. But she couldn't close her left eye for the first week because she had a little bit of nerve. Like the nerve had been crushed a little bit. Unfortunately, my third stage was yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, my third stage they clamped and cut her cord even though I really wanted not to have a lotus birth but I really wanted to birth before cutting the cord because I was like I want to please don't cut the cord and they're like no it's we're doing it and my midwife said to me it's okay Rosalie it's gone completely white so in terms of the actual benefit to her that had happened I was quite disappointed really that I felt kind of coerced into um, cutting that before I wanted to and then she kind of insisted on a managed third stage and she wouldn't tell me why she was just like I strongly recommend that you do this I strongly recommend it you know you can't do everything and I was there was also kind of pressure on me about Mabel and so I just said okay fine whatever yeah she gave me the injection um, and pulled the placenta out and that made me feel really sick when she just kind of yanked it out of me I had a bit of grief about that for a while after the birth that that had kind of been taken away from me that kind of I don't know there's something I think really sacred about birthing your placenta and kind of finishing off that process I mean I was on such a high like I was so happy and so excited and one of the things that they told me while I was still at home they said you know Rosie you got to be prepared when the baby comes out because her head's been back and there's been a lot of pressure put on her neck she's going to have noisy breathing um so and she did unfortunately the pediatrician who had come down for her birth was very obviously really anti-home birth, used her noisy breathing as a reason to take her away. And I kept on saying, I think she's fine. I want her to stay here. Could you stay here for another 10 minutes or 20 minutes? Um, and we'll just observe her. Because I know, you know, I've done all this research and I'm like, you know, babies, skin to skin, 
you know, getting her first feed, that's going to be the best thing we can do in terms of her, like, oxygen levels and her blood sugar levels. But they really, yeah, put a heap of pressure on. Yeah, I was like, well, my gut is saying she's fine. If I let them take her, they'll see that she's fine and then I'll get her back and this will all be finished. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. So they took her down to nursery and this pediatrician basically, like, burst in through the doors and she was like, oh, I've got a baby here. The mum was trying to home birth, so she hasn't done any tests. So we've got to treat this baby as if she's got gestational diabetes. And Kylie was there saying, no, like, she has, she did finger prick testing instead of the GTT. Like, she didn't have gestational diabetes. And at one point she turned to Kylie and said, sorry, excuse me, who are you in all of this? And Kylie said, oh, I'm, like, the baby's mum. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm Mabel's mother. <laughs> um, and she wouldn't refer to her as baby's mum. Like, she just kept on calling her um, my partner and then kind of predictably um, she ended up having a low blood sugar reading which makes a lot of sense because she'd had a pretty tricky birth and then she was taken away from me before she even got breastfeed it was pretty unfortunate we ended up staying in special care for two nights so I was in hospital for longer with my VBAC than I was with my c-section was just treated pretty poorly by the staff there particularly that doctor it was disappointing I guess like and especially the amazing birth like I was saying to my midwife like 20 minutes after she was born I was like so Joe, so next time for the next baby and she was like Rosalie let's not talk about that yet let's just it's like I need to go have a sleep before we talk about that <laughs> was <laughs> it the same hospital like, as well Rosalie that you went to initially or was yeah, it a different same one? hospital yeah was that triggering at all for you um or had you done sort of mental preparation in the sense that you know in case I do end so up needing a transfer my plan was that if I had a non-emergent transfer that I'll go to a different hospital but because of the situation and because I really owned it and I felt really included in the decision making process I felt fine about going there like it was unfortunate the stuff that happened when we got there but I didn't feel like it triggered me particularly which I think is probably kind of testament to how much like effort I'd put into that healing process even going there in the ambulance thinking I was having a cesarean I wasn't scared with regards to recovery what has that been like for you still even with the episiotomy it's definitely easier than the cesarean I did I recovered from a cesarean really well to be honest like to be fair my body seems to heal pretty well from things you know I can still feel the episiotomy but it hasn't given me I've had a couple of pelvic kind of physio checks and because I keep on thinking oh this doesn't feel the same you know maybe there's something wrong and but I think it's just that things don't feel the same after you have a baby (laughs) like it doesn't feel bad it just kind of feels different I can feel that when I ovulate I can feel it kind of it gives me a little bit of not really pain it's just kind of an awareness that it's there and I think I wonder how much of that is like kind of psychological and kind of carrying that that experience that wasn't necessarily perfect and you know there's still bits to grieve from that story and I think that sometimes if we don't pay enough attention to what we're grieving that our body will kind of bring us back to that and say hey you know you know you still need to process this a little bit. Did you provide any feedback about the pediatrician or anything like that or have you decided that that's something you'd like to do or have you done that? Yeah I did so I um, put in another complaint about that and found it pretty unhelpful their response to be honest like 
it kind of felt like I was being gaslit a bit, you know, because I had some real concerns about the consent around my third stage. And the doctor, when we talked about it, she was like, oh, well, you know, I did it for this reason and this reason. And, you know, we're trained to listen to, you know, nonverbal consent. And so I saw you and your midwife give each other a look and I took that as consent. And I was like, what do you mean? Like me looking at my midwife is not the same as me providing consent to like a um, syntocin injection. Like obviously what I had hoped for in giving this feedback is that it might have been something that made her think, you know, because if she had in that moment said to me, I'm worried about, you know, your uterus is really tired and um, I'm a bit worried about you having a, a hemorrhage, which is what she said to me in this meeting, then I would have had the opportunity then to say, okay, well, I accept that level of risk and I don't want the injection or to say, yeah, okay, no, that's a really good point. I've had a hard labor, you know, I've got an epidural. I'm not really going to have a physiological third stage very easily, but because, but I wasn't given that choice. One or two more minutes to explain to me what was happening would have made a really big difference. Yeah, I just think she wasn't really ready to hear that. And it's complicated. Like I have a lot of gratitude to her for being the doctor who said, do you want to be back or do you want a C-section? Like, yeah, it's also fair for me to have some feelings about the other stuff that went on. You know, the world's not black and white, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So you did touch there um, about your next birth. Um, <laughs> have you been thinking about that? Is that something that's on your mind or is it just something <laughs> that just a fleeting comment when you immediately gave birth to Mabel or is that um, um, something on the I card? just want to do it again. Like, oh. <laughs> If Mabel hadn't been face presenting, she would have come out pretty easily. I would definitely would plan a home birth. It was validating to kind of go, you know, I was right. Like my body wasn't broken. I could have birthed him. I had a small baby, but she came out in pretty much like the biggest possible. Like the yes. Of the face coming out. Um, it's yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, I think, I think B from Core Floor Restore had done a reel about this and I re it really stayed with me about it's not about the weight it's more the dimensions the thing with a face presentation is because the head doesn't mold in a face presentation so she came out and her head was still just perfectly round compared to a baby if they come out the top of their head first and their head kind of squishes into that egg shape yeah there was obviously plenty of space in there to come out so I just kind of yeah really feel like oh yeah my body can do these like amazing things and these really hard things and I feel I just feel like I never want to not trust like my body and my instincts again because it was just proven to me over and over again through that labor and birth that you know even throughout my pregnancy I kept on you know when I was tuning in and thinking about talking to my baby I kept on saying to her like hey baby tuck your chin baby make sure you tuck your chin which is a really weird thing to be thinking about saying to your baby and I don't know where it had come from but she didn't listen to me but it's just really interesting that I kind of <laughs> like predicted that. That's so interesting. Yeah. I was going to say as well, um, it was quite interesting. I didn't actually have much of a plan for having a vaginal birth in hospital because with private midwives and certainly with my private midwife, this was the first time she had ever transferred with someone to hospital and then not had a cesarean. I hadn't really ever thought, I'd always thought if I had transferred a hospital in labour, like, it would have been, we would have already done everything we could at home. Like it's, I think it's good. And I think birth teaches us 
so much. And I think just really learning that you can't predict everything. And I couldn't possibly have predicted a face presentation. Like it's so rare, but it was how she was meant to be born. And it's just, it's super special because it's her story and my story. Well done you. That's yeah, it's really amazing. I like how you had gotten yourself into such a good place before the birth Mm. that you were prepared even though you weren't prepared for specifically a face presentation you were prepared mentally and emotionally to go to places that you may not may not want to go again for the safe arrival of your of your baby so thank you so much Rosalie for taking the time to talk to us and share your um, amazing story this podcast has just been amazing for me like it's just so uplifting and encouraging and the last thing I did before I stopped listening to um, birth stories um, one of the last things I did was actually listen to your your second VBAC um, story because I found it so uplifting oh really thank you (laughs) nice to hear I wanted to to finish on like a really high note and then yeah like go into my space yeah oh that's so lovely and thank you so much for being so supportive of the podcast and being a patron as well we feel really grateful for you know people like you that support the podcast and also all the messages that we get from women um it really does help to keep us going thank you for listening to this feedback journey if you like the show please subscribe leave us a review or consider joining our patreon we thank you very much for your support VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.